Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn to our scripture. Father, thank you so much for sweet forgiveness that we have in Christ. And thank you so much for sweet forgiveness that we have from brothers and sisters. Father, um, guard our tongues. Help us to be uplifting and not put someone in a bad light, but be encouraging and loving and caring. Father, as we turn to the Scripture, we're going to see how much Paul loved the people at Philippi. How much you love us. This will give us guidance through the Holy Spirit to understand these things. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, some of you may have had a friend touch base with you before and let you know how much they care about you. Uh, some of you may have heard someone praying for you. And you've, in that prayer, thought, they really care for me and they love me. Uh, some of you may have received a letter. Um, that came to you in the mail that exclaimed uh, a person's great love and admiration of you. I remember when I was in college, from time to time I would run in my mailbox and usually you open your mailbox in college and you blow in there, blow the dust out, that type of thing. But this, every once in a while on those particular days, and I, I noticed that it, from the Lord, it was always those times when I was really struggling that I would have a note from someone and it was typically someone from my home church. And I love that. It was so encouraging and so uplifting. Well, today, what we're doing is we're looking in someone else's mailbox, so to speak. And we're opening up a letter of love. A letter of love and encouragement from St. Paul to the church at Philippi. So we're kind of there at a mailbox and we're, we're getting to intercept this and we're getting to look at it and think about it and, and consider the glories of what is going on here in this precious relationship. So let us open again our Bibles to Philippians 1 and we're going to read just the first two verses. And we're going to see what God has for us this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reading of God's Word. Let it enrich our hearts and minds. As we come this morning, uh, we sort of know Paul the writer, don't we? We know at least a little bit about him if we've been in church in any uh, time period. Um, as we open this letter that he pens to the saints in Philippi, we may not know them as well. And so questions maybe should flood our mind. Uh, who were these people that Paul loved? And, and especially, you know, one of the questions we may ask is, what does this have to do with us? Even as we read these few verses, what does that mean to us? And so today we want to consider some matters that will help us as we begin the study in Philippians as, and as we walk forward in the letter. So we want to look at three things. One of them is going to be long. My first point is going to be long, okay? And that is the birth of the church at Philippi. We need to understand the people that he's writing to. Secondly, we want to know what the makeup of a church is. And then thirdly, we want to understand the glue of a church, and so the first thing we want to look at is the birth of a church in Philippi. The gathering of the saints in Acts 16. So if you would, 
You know, stick something in this place right here in Philippians and turn over to Acts 16. I'm going to walk you through this text. It's incredible. So I want you to think about this just for a moment. This is the first time the gospel is making its way on European soil. And just think about that. This is, this is God's history, the history of His redemption, the history of His church being built upon uh, uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, beginning its place in Europe. It's, it's beautiful. And we see at the beginning of verse 6 that Paul is on his second missionary journey. And Silas and Timothy are with him and they're traveling through Asia Minor and they had hoped to turn southwest to the populated cities of Colossae and Ephesus. However, their progress was blocked. We don't know exactly how that happened humanly speaking. Luke only tells us that the Holy Spirit had prevented them. So pay attention to that. The Holy Spirit had prevented them. And now I don't think there was a spirit standing there before them. I think that something happened. And what Paul did and what Timothy did and what Silas did and what Luke records for us is this. Is that the Holy Spirit was doing something tangible to stop them. Turning north, they traveled instead toward the province of Bithynia in the, Black, in the Black Sea. Again, Luke says that their path was closed. This time, he changes the wording just a little bit and says, by the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, again, prevent them from moving forward. So in the end, they take the only remaining route, which brought them to the northwest coast of Asia Minor, to the port of Troas. And it was there while they were in Troas that Paul has this vision. The Spirit comes to him and he has this vision of a man begging, begging them to come. Come, come, give us this message. And so Paul in this vision from Macedonia um, decides it's time to go. And so he will travel from the Roman province to the Roman province, I'm sorry, uh, across the Aegean Sea from Troas. So this is where God was leading this team of missionaries. Now it is here, if you pay close attention to the tax, that Luke is joining the expedition because all of a sudden he moves from telling about it to first-person journaling here. It's very wonderful. So he moves into talking about us and we and what we did. And so Luke tells us that they made, get this, unbelievable, incredible progress. And it was as though the Holy Spirit was now pressing as a wind behind the sails of the boat. What we see here is with one overnight stay on a rocky island, they set sail, they go stay there one night, and then they sail on to the port of Neapolis. In all, they traveled 150 miles in two days on a sailing vessel. That's incredible. The wind was at their back. The Spirit blew them. (laughs) And so from Neapolis, they take the paved road about 10 miles inland to the place of Philippi. Now, Ferguson notes that, and I love this, this is the reason why I want to use this quote. He says, you can imagine that many people are passing them on the way and they're not really giving them a second look. But these are the men that Acts 17 would say were turning the world upside down. That's how Acts 17 puts it. The gospel turning the world upside down. 
Now we're going to see about that here in just a moment. Because as Paul and other uh, missionaries enter into Philippi, they realize that there's no synagogue there. Again, a roadblock. Why is that a roadblock? Well, there's no place for Paul to go and preach publicly. So they couldn't start as they normally did, preaching to the Jews at the synagogue and then it filtering out into the, into the city. But they came upon a group of women who were praying by the river on the Sabbath. And the people the Lord had prepared for them to meet. These were the people. And so Paul begins to share. There was a woman there named Lydia. She was a businesswoman. She dealt with expensive purple cloth, the choice of emperors. And Luke says that she was a worshiper, worshiper of God. But she was not converted. And so Paul spoke. And what the text says is that the Lord in His Spirit opened her heart to welcome the Gospel. They went home with her. She uh, and her whole household were, were baptized as she showed uh, hospitality and invited them into her home. Um, is this house, maybe uh, theologians wrestle with, is this house where they first went because you could see her spiritual gift of hospitality, is this the first house where the church was in Philippi? It could have been the place where they met. We don't know for sure. Over the next several days, though, the journey continues. The issues continues. Paul and Silas were harassed by a fortune teller. A fortune teller is walking around behind him. She was a slave girl. She was making all kinds of money for her owners. And she started following them around. And, and she's yelling this, the, these words here. These men are working for the Most High God. They're laying out the road of salvation for you. I mean, it's amazing. But it irritates Paul, the text alludes to. And she did this for a number of days until finally Paul just, you know, and you think about why would this irritate? Because she's drawing attention and, and all these things are going on and Paul knows what city officials may do. And so he finally just steps out and he commands the Spirit in her, get out of her. In the name of Jesus, get out of her. Just like that. That demon spirit is gone. And then the troubles start. Again, it's just like a movie. You know, the troubles start. The slave girl's owners are furious because she's not making money for them anymore. They drag Paul and Silas before the city magistrates. They accuse them of being Jewish troublemakers who are trying to promote an illegal religion. And they, it's interesting because they make no mention whatsoever of the fortune-telling racket that's been ruined. But by, because of this testimony, Paul and Silas are brutally flogged. They're, they're beaten. They're chained up and put in prison. And you can imagine they're bloody. They're in great pain. And what do they do, though? What do they do? Do they bemoan it? Do they, oh, I can't believe God would do this. Isn't God good? No, they sing hymns. They sing hymns to the glory of God until midnight. And at midnight, suddenly there's this earthquake. And this earthquake happens. The prison is wrecked. And so the prisoners can run free. And so the jailer who's in charge of these people, who's a Roman soldier, knows what penalty he'll pay and what shame he'll face if they have left. And so he prepares to take his life by falling on his sword. Paul understands this is happening. He calls out and he says, all is well, we are here. The jailer, though a Roman soldier, veteran who's hardened, becomes a changed man. He puts his faith in Christ. He welcomes Paul and Silas into his home as well. And he washes their wounds for them. 
He cares for them. And by daylight, the family, the, the scripture says that the family, his family, were baptized as well. The following day, the order comes for Paul and Silas to be released, but Paul has a point to make. So he and Silas, he explains to them, are Roman citizens. And once that's out, you're not supposed to do the things that you did to Paul and Silas as Roman citizens. And so there's fear that runs through the officials. And so eventually, Paul and Silas receive an official apology. Now, think about all that. As Paul and Silas uh, uh, moved on from Philippi, they left behind a curious mix of believers. A businesswoman, a slave girl, a jailer, and perhaps others. Now united in Christ Jesus. United in the shared life of Christ. A nucleus of a local church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the glorious gospel at work. It goes out to all. No matter what age, stage, place in life, no matter how good you think your life is or how awful you think your life is, the gospel comes to you. Look at what's going on here. Paul and and his team are first of all on mission. Get that. They're on mission. Paul and these brothers were called to witness to the Gentiles. And what they did was they sought out by the Spirit's power where to go. They're following the Spirit's lead. And even even as their normal procedures sort of do not happen like they think they would, they move on and they follow. They listen. They're awake to the Spirit's leading, so to speak. And so the question for us is, as we think about this passage, are we on mission that the Lord has given us? Are we mindful of the Spirit's leading and urging in our hearts to be on mission? The second thing that we see here is that his, Paul and his team were on message. So they're on mission, they're on message. And their message was simple. Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Savior and Lord. Now brothers and sisters, we know there are many, many, many important messages in this world that we live in. But there is none more important than this. Because it is the salvation of all mankind that is at stake. And so the question is, is our main mission the fact that Jesus Christ is crucified, that He's risen, and that He is the Lord? When we wake up in the morning, let me tell you something, when we wake up in the morning, if we have that, and I'm telling you, sometimes I'll go through, I just went through a period here in January where like, it was like I was just consumed by the Lord. And then, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, like a, I'm one of these people that kind of do things in a, in a pattern way and that type of thing. So when I went off to uh, this conference, as good as it was, it got me out of that pattern. But if I'm trying to get back into it, so when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I want to think about is the Lord and His message to my heart first. The Lord and His message to my family's heart. And then I want to be open as I go throughout the day to the message that I may speak to someone else. Because it's important. It is the most important message. 
So Paul and his, and his missionary team were on mission. They were on message. And lastly, Paul and his team were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They proclaimed in this text, but in each area where it's important to see, we see the behind the scenes and we see that it was the Lord who awakened these people. So our mission, our message is there, but the results of that are always in the hands of the Lord so that we can rest and relax in that truth and that reality. And so do we trust in Him as we are on mission and as we are on mission? Do we trust in His Spirit to work as we proclaim Him to those who do not know Him? I was thinking about this the other day, and it's, it's almost like we do have a secret, you know? And it's not a secret. It's not like it's been hidden behind some bushel or anything. It's right there before us. But we know the reality of that truth. And so as we sit before someone, our fear, we shouldn't be fearful in terms of how do I share this? Will they reject me or not? We're just like, yeah, can you believe this? This is great. The Lord forgives us. The Lord has sent His Son for us. The Lord is working in my heart. And He can work in yours too. Now, there's a lot to that. And that's why it's not just about evangelism. It's about discipleship. There's a lot to that. How do you wrestle through your life is not your best life now once you hear that message? Because it's not sometimes. Your best life now will come when He returns. I'm telling you. But right now, it's not quite there. We still wrestle. We still struggle. We still have issues with sin. On mission. On messaging. Powered by the Holy Spirit. So what we see here with Paul and his team, and what they've done is they have planted a church. Look at it this way. They've done it this way. They've parachuted in, you know. That's their mission. Parachute into that area. God gave them a mission. Go. Follow the vision. Go across that sea. Parachute in. Stay on mission. Stay on message. In the power of the Holy Spirit. And what happened here? A church was born. A church was born. So let's consider just for a moment. What is the makeup of a church? Because I think there's something important. As we flip back to Philippians chapter 1, there is something very important here in these first two verses. Think of it again. A, 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 a businesswoman a slave girl, a tough Roman soldier, a jailer, and perhaps maybe others united in the shared life of Christ as a nucleus of a local church. They make up a body of believers whom Paul addresses as saints. Now back to our letter here in Philippians, we see in the first verse, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. These were the people that Paul had proclaimed the message of the gospel to. These were the people who had heard and received the message. They were the people that Paul had great affection for and whom they had affection for as well. In the next couple sections we'll talk about, or the next couple sermons, we'll talk about how this letter ended up coming from Paul. But these were the people that Paul undoubtedly um, wanted to communicate his love to. And notice what he calls them. And I think he's being very specific here. He could have said to the people in Philippi. But he said to the saints in Philippi. He's making a point. What are saints? Now some think of saints 
as a person who is, is recognized as having exceptional, an exceptional degree of holiness or likeness or closeness to God. Culturally, we may even recognize that Roman Catholics refer to saints as the faithful deceased which are now in heaven. However, the Scriptures would disagree. The Scripture uses saints to describe those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ much of the same way that we would use the word Christian today. It means, uh, this means that the term saint applies to us and not some sort of special Christians, but just plain, ordinary believers like you and like myself. James Boyce tells the story of um, Harry Iron, Ironside. And, you know, back in his day, there's no airplane travel, and so they traveled train, and so he would ride like days on a train to get somewhere to preach or do some ministry. And he was on one of his train trips one time and, and, and his, um, I guess, cabin area or whatever, there were several nuns there. And they began a friendship. And, um, and he, uh, they, they really, the, the story says, uh, communicates that they really began to like him. You know, he, he was an interesting character. They loved his manner. Uh, they liked some of the interesting things he was reading. And he would talk about the scriptures to them. And they were enthralled by all that. And so one day he looks at him and he says, ladies, have you ever seen a saint? And they were like, no, we haven't. He said, would you like to see one? Oh, that would be great, enthusiastically, they said. Oh, that would be wonderful. And he goes, well, look at me. I'm a saint. I'm Saint Harry. And they just looked at me like, you've lost your mind. But then he opened up the Scriptures, and he took them to passages like this, and he showed them where Paul uses this word to describe the people of God. We are saints. We are His people. So as we think about this on a deeper level, as as a title, we need to understand that saint points in one direction to what Christ has done for us, okay? We are saints because of Christ's work and His calling. Understand that. But there's another aspect and and another point when it comes to saints. It points to the responsibility which now falls on us to live out of the newness that God has given us. Moitier in his commentary is very encouraging on this. Much of my thought process in this is from reading him and, and Boyce. But he says that what Paul is doing here is defending what a Christian is. And that is at the heart of the definition of the word saints. The word translated saints here in the Greece is hagios, which is also translated mostly in the, in the, in the New Testament as holy. Okay? So it's translated here as saints, and most of the places it's translated holy. Behind the word hagios, in its counterpart word in the Old Testament, is the obvious idea of being separate or apart. They express that of belonging to a different order of things, or of, of living in a different sphere. That's what's being communicated here. And so when we look at the, the Scriptures and we think about holy, again, the, the, when, when we think about holiness, our minds are, if, if you're a Bible reader, your minds are always drawn to that passage in Isaiah where God says, you know, where it talks about God being holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord of hosts. 
Now, according to the Hebrew use of repetition and repeated word holy indicates that this describes the total divine nature and that the holiness of God is itself superlative of its kind. Israel's response to this shows that holiness is not only something true of His whole nature and something unique in its kind, but also that there is a moral holiness here. In other words, it is the moral perfection of His whole being. And you can't separate those things. And why is this important to us as saints? Why is this important to us as saints? Well, it shows us not only the nature and moral character of God, but that this is the word and the idea which is being used to describe the Christian who is in Christ. We are to be unique in the world. We are to be set apart in the world. We are to be living in a different sphere in the world, under a different order of things in the world. And so the emphasis for the word of saints or holy people is on position first rather than conduct. However, saints are to act saintly in keeping with the holy character of God. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a struggle unless we realize that it's by grace. It's by grace that He does this. It's by grace that He works in you to make you more like your son, more like His son. You know, uh, last a couple weeks ago when I was at the conference, um, Harry Reader said something, and I, I might have mentioned this last week, but he said something very important, and Caleb illustrated it this morning as he talked about, I'm doing this because my dad does this. So he's imitating his dad. We're imitators. And what God has said is imitate me. Imitate my son. You don't understand me? Well, one who's coming, if we're looking from the Old Testament perspective, there is one who's coming who will show you who I am. In flesh and bones, he'll show you who I am. Imitate him. You remember Paul? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so this is this idea of holiness. We are called by grace and in the sight of God because here is the thing. He has made the people here in Philippi partakers of the divine nature. He is conferring on them the honor of honors that the holy God should give them as His title and His character and His call the term saints. And so are we, the saints of God. As we begin this letter, let's begin it that way. He's going to talk about what it looks like to live in that way. But more importantly, he wants us to understand what it means to be in that way. We are his people called to be separate, to be different. Listen, young people, our language should be different. Listen, young people, our thinking should be different. You know, I didn't really get that until I went to Bible college because I grew up a pagan, folks. And, and you know, when I, I'll tell you the truth, this is an interesting story, but when I was a, a young man, I dated this girl. None of my friends knew my girlfriend because they would all try to sleep with each other's girlfriends. Yeah. And so I had a girl that I really liked, and I'm like, I'm not letting my friends meet this girl. When I went to Bible college, I'm sitting and I'm talking to a guy. 
in, on my hall. And I'm like, hey, I saw your girlfriend sitting with a guy today at lunch. And he goes, yeah, that's her friend. And I'm like, man, where I come from, friends, that's not good. And he goes, he looked at me and he said this, what's wrong with you? <laughs> he was right. There in Bible college, it hit me. I think like the world. I'm acting like the world. I'm a Christian and I'm growing and I'm understanding, but I think like the world. Lord, help me. And, and brothers and sisters, He did. We need to help one another, not think like the world. We need to encourage one another. You know, young men encourage one another. Young ladies encourage one another to think like a Christian. Don't be afraid to say, hey, we're, we're holy people. Let's not talk like this. Let's not gossip like this. Let's not speak like this. Let's not think like this. We are a called out people. It's nice that Paul does not simply address them as saints, but he addresses them this way, as saints in Christ Jesus. See, and there's the glue. There's our third point. The glue that holds the church together is being in Christ. In Christ. By itself, term, the term saint, as we have already seen, might suggest self-effort resulting in some sort of self-improvement or costly effort reaching for higher heights of living. But again, that's not biblical. Salvation comes to us through Christ. It is in Christ that all of God's saving purposes are centered. In Christ, it is His saving purposes worked out for us by Him. In Christ, we are secure and have everything we need. His glorious riches are laid open to meet our needs. In Christ, we have become new people. Again, with new feelings, with new mindset, with a new way of looking at things. To be in Christ then is to possess what is often spoken of as full salvation. Everything necessary. And listen to our past to our present, and to our future eternal welfare. Everything that He has done has been secured for us by the action of God in Christ and stored for us in Christ for us to share in and enjoy forever. In Christ is the glue that holds the church together. We may come from different genders, different races, different places in the world, different places in the metroplex, different ages. He calls us together to be in Christ. That's the beauty of the church. That's the glory of His plan. That all nations would know what it is to be in Christ. As Mortier points out, it is not only the benefits and blessings that are in Christ, we are in Him ourselves. I want you to think about that. He is in us. In, in, in the New Testament, it tells us that He came and, and it says God, Emmanuel, God with us. But then Paul changes those words and he says, I tell you the glory of glories, Christ in you. Believe it, people. Believe it. As Paul writes to the saints of Philippi with, with warmth and love and truth, not only from his heart, but also from the very heart of God to the holy ones, the saints, 
He writes to us. This letter was given to us that we would read those first few lines and that we would see that we too are saints. Perhaps you have never received a letter from a friend expressing such love and wonder for who you are. Well, guess what? You have today. You have today. Saints, we gather to hear the sacred story of God's love to us. He has brought us to this place, is writing through the journal of Luke, as this letter is opened to us from Paul, and the story reminds us that we are His Holy One set apart to be His people, to be saints, to be loved in Him and by Him. To be in Christ Jesus with all the glorious benefits and responsibilities that entails it just to receive Him and Him alone. If there were nothing else that we would receive, that it would just be Him. You ever think about that? Lord, don't bless me today with anything but You. Just You. We do not receive this in any way but by the grace and the love of Christ. We are called as His people then to pass that letter on to others. That they would know that they're loved. That they're cherished. That they too can be the saints of God. Are we on mission? Are we on message? Are we empowered with the Spirit of Christ to show forth His fruits and His gifts that we may live unto Him for His glory as His second body that is embodied on this earth? Will you see yourselves as the saints of God, His beloved, His empowered? Let us pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your love and mercy to us. We ask that You would help us to see this new and real. May we meditate upon this all week. Lord, I'm a saint. Not like the world sees it, not like our culture sees it, but like You see it in Christ Jesus. You have promised, as you will say later in the letter to the Philippians, that you who began a good work will complete it. Oh Lord, thank You. Even though we struggle, even though we feel ashamed for our sin, even though we we have setbacks, even though we see how far we have yet to be to where we are holy so far that we don't even know what holiness is except save Jesus. You have promised to bring it to completion. We are Your people. Receive our praise. Receive our worship. And may Your Spirit breathe that truth new and afresh in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and rejoice in Christ's love.